0: Hi, this is the Organisational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organizational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organizational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined again by Janet Morgan, who's a specialist in helping organizations and individuals with neurodiversity. Welcome back, Janet.
1: David. Great to be back. Yes,
0: absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed the last two podcasts. And in those last two podcasts, we've started to explore a little bit around the issues of neurodiversity and what it is. But in this episode, I want to go a little bit deeper and I suppose start with this question first. In the last episode, you spoke about this idea of neurotypical. What do we mean by that?
1: So again, with the disclaimer that we spoke about last time, that the language sometimes is not precise enough for what we need, in its very real sense, we're talking about you me David so we talked about neurodiversity meaning everybody this variability in terms of our Human brains. But within that conversation, we have to look at the fact that there is this distribution curve that you spoke about last time, where the majority of the population will think in what we call a neurotypical way, the way that most of us think we think. And then there will be people at other sides at the sort of ends of that distribution curve. And that is what we call neurodivergence. So I would sit within the two neurotypical range. I don't have any particular challenges with my working memory, for example. I don't have any particular challenges in the way that I process information at speed. And you may be different from that point of view if we're talking about dyslexia. So that's where that positionality might change. And so what we're talking about, notwithstanding the generalizations, but what we're talking about is a group of people within the population who have cognitive, functioning patterns of thinking and learning that we can identify that are different to the majority of the population and the interesting thing for the workplace is what that means when we have that taking place in the workplace yeah
0: interesting and so what kinds of because we kind of categorize some of the conditions that are included in the kind of neurodiverse range what kinds of conditions are we talking about here
1: The most obvious one that people will think about, I guess there were two, and there is dyslexia and autism. Those are usually the go-to conditions. Again, we take that under advisement when we're talking about neurodivergence. So dyslexia, most people now will be familiar with as a developmental condition, or how it presents is as a condition where people are struggling with the development of language and literacy related tasks. That's the top of the iceberg. That's how it might present. We might see that perhaps difficulties with reading, perhaps difficulties with speaking out loud, difficult with things. What we don't see is what sits behind. So it's what we would call phonological processing. And that is the ability not to hear, but actually to hold on to sounds, to manipulate sounds. And when you are neurotypical, you don't have to think about those things. When we do things like reading, for example, the neurotypical brain, we have what is called automaticity. You read, you don't have to actually think about how do I match these squiggly lines on a page to the sounds that they make? And how do I remember that and match it to the meaning? So when we break down, and I don't know how many people have actually thought outside of teaching what it means to read and what it means to write, when you start to think about, then you start to see all the different layers that are involved in the reading and writing. So those are the obvious things with dyslexia. As I say, the less obvious ones are things like the working memory, things like rapid naming, you know, sort of tip of the tongue challenges where you know the word but you can't access it from your long-term memory. So let's think about all the literacy related tasks that happen in the workplace. Autism is the other one that people think about particularly now when we talk about neurodiversity and when people talk about cognitive difference they're often thinking about autism. So how that will present and I guess the general way that people will think about autism and we're talking about again a huge range of strengths and challenges there but as a sort of developmental condition that's often characterised by perhaps some behaviours that appear repetitive, perhaps some difficulties with interpreting communication, perhaps some rigid or particular thinking. Those are the generalisations that often come to the fore, first of all. What we might not see and be thinking about is how people manage sensory information. And it's the ability to manage the sensory information that might lead to some of those behaviours that we're seeing at the top of the iceberg, as it were. So, for example, if you're in an open plan office and you've got lots of auditory information, lots of noise coming at you, if you have got lots of different colours coming at you, patterns coming at you, if you have got lots of people talking at one, Being able to manage that sometimes is very, very difficult and it takes people into sensory overload. So that's what you'll often see. What you don't see actually is people's attention to detail, people's hard work. People's commitment, people's empathy. We often think about autism as a lack of empathy, but actually it may be over empathy in a lot of ways. Damian Milton talks about the double empathy challenge that people have when we think about autism. So we may not be seeing actually what people bring in. I know there's a talk now about having autistic people coming in, and there's a talk about some of MR6, I think it was, GCHQ, and how they recruit a lot of people who are autistic. But again, for most people, their experiences in the workplace are quite challenging. So those are the two ones that people think about. There are also things like dyspraxia, which again is a developmental condition that is mainly associated with coordination. So if you are going to identify, diagnose dyspraxia, then the first thing that you would be asking a person about would be their nation when they were a child. You would be looking for a presentation when they were a child. So it might be very fine motor skills. It might be things like tying shoelaces. It might be doing things like using a knife and fork, but it also may gross motor skills, catching a ball and playing at sports and things. Later on, that may change. So it may well be that the issues aren't with your gross motor skills. I think I said last time that one of my sons is dyspraxic, brilliant sportsman. For him, the challenge is more about processing information. So getting the thoughts out of his head and onto the page. So if you asked him an interview question, he'd be able to answer that eloquently most of the time. Sometimes, He might be searching for the words so that he can explain it coherently, even though he knows the right answer. If you asked him to write it down, it would look like a dog's dinner because his handwriting is all over the place. And also his thoughts, that journey from our head to the page. Again, my neurotypical brain, it's a very straightforward thing. With dyspraxia, it's very different and it often doesn't represent a person's thoughts. So there's three. There are others. So we are talking about calculia. I won't go into them unless you ask me about them. And under the neurotypical, diversity umbrella. There's ADHD, of course, and that's been spoken about a lot, but also things like tic disorders, OCD, Tourette's. That fall under the neurodiversity umbrella as well. So we can see how broad this family is of neurodevelopmental conditions. No two people are alike. Overlap is the rule. I think we said last time, one in seven people are neurodivergent. So I think that's the thing to hold on to. Well
0: Wow. Fascinate. You mentioned double empathy, was it?
1: Yes. Yes. So Damien Milton is an We perhaps may be able to put a reference to that out later on because I don't want to do injustice yes. to what he talks about. But when we're thinking about autism we've got this dynamic going on where there is a lack of empathy from those of us who are neurotypical in understanding what is really happening for people with autism and then there is the empathy challenges that people with autism have in terms of negotiating that relationship with people who are neurotypical so you have these two things happening at the same time and therefore that's where you're often having the communication breakdown so you know as I was saying we're often talking about the lack that people are autistic have and actually not really understanding what is going on for them, and you have people with autism who are trying to navigate that.
0: Yeah, and you were mentioning kind of I six, and in the next podcast we'll be going through a research briefing that we did a few years ago around kind of communication styles and things like say, for example, just like I six recruiting people who are on the autism spectrum, particularly because of their ability to be able to focus and look at the details and things like that, yeah. and I suppose. The question is, what are the kinds of issues that organisations are then facing when you know they've got a neurodiverse population in their workforce?
1: Well, I guess we could say the issues they're facing are of their own doing. If organisations are neurotypical, then the organisational culture will be neurotypical. And if the leadership is also neurotypical, that is going to play out in people's everyday working practices. So the issues that we're talking about is how do people get into those workplaces in the first place and how do they show up as their best selves how do they thrive in those spaces and if we're not talking about neurodiversity in a positive way how do we end up being solutions focused how do we then anticipate where there might be a need for more understanding if we default to ways of running meetings if we default to the way that we lay out our offices if we just suddenly say right you're working from home or you're not working from home, then we're not going to take into consideration the impact that has COVID has been the greatest example of that. So prior to COVID, when I worked in a university, I was having to make the case for reasonable adjustments for students to have access to a computer. Why? Because that wasn't the neurotypical way of doing things. You actually wrote your exams by hand. Now for my son, who I said was dyspraxic, that would put him at a terrible disadvantage in terms of just the fatigue from having to get the thoughts out of his head and then actually to late that into his handwriting. Because, because part of dyspraxia, for example, is around basically the brain making those signals to other parts of your body, having that awareness awareness, knowing where things are, and so pen control was something that would be really, really challenging. So we couldn't do that before COVID. That was a reasonable adjustment. And then all of a sudden, we're all working from home. We're all on Zoom and Teams and various other platforms. And so the adjustment that you might need is, I don't want to be on a computer all the time. So it can be done when the imperative is there to do it. But if organisations don't see if they're unable to see where things create barriers or they choose not to see where issues create barriers, then they'll will have an open office and yes, we've got one that you can book on a Friday, every second Friday of the month, and that's fine, you should be fine. Or you will have protocols around emails or you will have meetings that go on for hours and hours and hours and then get very upset that people switch off in their meetings because of the distractibility. So I think there's, if we can think about it as issues, we can also think about it as a huge waste of potential. We can also think about it as exclusion. We can think about it as discrimination. And so if organizations really want to get the best out of their colleagues, A, they need to be looking elsewhere so they can recruit people in and then B, when they get there, They need to create an environment where they can thrive, but then they also do need to be nuanced, I think, and recognize that there may be some people, as I said, for their neurodivergence is not disabling personally. There are some people for whom it really is. So that's where that superpower narrative can be problematic. Some people, the workplace is the adjustment. For other people, you really will have to think carefully about adjustments that you can put in place.
0: Interesting. I'm particularly interested in something that you were saying a little bit earlier on, and it sounded like, or it sounds a little bit like, that maybe some of the recruiting processes that organisations are engaging in are... Large focused on recruiting neurotypical people. Would that be right?
1: It's not conscious a lot of the time with organisations. But if you set up a recruitment and selection process that already is going to exclude people, discriminate against people, let's think about some examples. So again, if it is, if you have dyslexia and it is very much about administration, it's very bureaucratic, you may automatically put people off who can't wrap their heads around the application process. So they fall off very early on. If you don't have an opportunity to come into the workplace and actually see what it might be like to work there. And by the way, these things work for everybody. So we're not talking about special treatment, but what we're talking about is making it inclusive. So if you don't have opportunities to speak to someone about the role and come in, then you may be put off and not apply. If you think you're doing really, really well and you have that tick box that says, if you have a disability, please let us know. On the one hand, that may be a positive thing, but also is going to be off-putting to a lot of people. They may not know what you mean by a disability and they may not even know that they have a neurodivergent profile. So those things, again, because of the stigma around disability, may be off-putting for people. They're not going to tick that box. So all of these neurotypical ways of recruitment, it's not that they are in and of themselves wrong. It's just that they don't cast their net wide enough. And so it's really important to think about those things. How do you fill in a full if you have an application that times out after a certain period of time and you've spent all that time thinking about it because you're neurodivergent can you relate you know that's going to be devastating if you're told there's going to be a test you know and it's going to bring back awful memories of when you're at school you know if there's no opportunity to do a practical assessment to show what you can do so all of those things are just going to shut down that opportunity for a lot of people
0: and it also sounds like by doing that by shutting down those opportunities a lot of organisations are missing a trick at using some of the abilities of neurodivergent people as you were talking about before and we'll talk about a little bit more in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's oxford-review.com. And please, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you.